0: Okay, we're going to read Psalm 64, which is to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity, who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows. Bitter words that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They encourage themselves in an evil matter. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? They devise iniquities. We have perfected a shrewd scheme. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep, but God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded, so he will make them stumble over their own tongue. All who see them shall flee away. All men shall fear, and shall declare the work of God." for they shall wisely consider his doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. Hmm. Wonderful words. Wonderful words. What's that? How many saw God in the last election? Almost all the Christians saw God. That's right. That's right. Didn't see his hand in there. That's absolutely right. But those who know the Lord know that he had a plan that was different than what the left has been planning for quite a while. And uh, it may just be a temporary thing. It may be, uh, who knows, but uh, great things did happen. We're thankful for that. Um, Our sermon today is Jonah 2. It's verses 1 through 4. This is entitled, Out of the Belly of Sheol I Cried. All right. Jonah chapter 2 says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Just so you know we're gonna gnaw through uh, a concept today um that uh something I've been talking about for a while it's a, what is the sign of Jonah, and I'll get to that in just a minute, but before I actually uh get into the sermon and eventually into what the sign of Jonah is, there's somebody I mentioned her during the um the uh Thursday night Bible study. Is that she's been plugging away because I kind of challenge people. Can you tell me what the sign of Jonah is? Because everybody thinks it's him being in the fish of the the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, and that's not it. And she's been emailing me slowly but surely. And she did send one. Maybe she got it finally. And um, uh, if she did, that's great. I didn't I didn't have time to open the email after the over the past twenty four hours. But uh, she's been slowly but surely reading, and she knows what the sign is, but not what it pertains to. She got that part right. So um, it's not always what you think. When you hear something and people repeat things, it gets ingrained in you. You know, this is something that the Bible teaches, and you hear it again and again and again, and you find out that it's not true. You know, it's like tithing. That's beat into people's heads. And you find out that what is taught in a church concerning tithing is not true. In fact, it's completely different than what you would ever expect. Okay, and that's, we never mentioned giving in this church on any uh level except to correct people of a faulty view of tithing, because it's an Old Testament principle. It's not a New Testament principle. Okay? And in the New Testament we only have two prescriptions or actually two exhortations concerning giving at all. One, give as you've been blessed, and two, you know, add something in for he who teaches you, because he teaches you, take care of his needs. And other than that, the Bible never levies any requirement on you. And if you don't know what actually the Old Testament tithing is, Ask me sometime when I have a few minutes, and you will be completely surprised. It's not at all what you're... Isn't it right? I got two people up in the front here who were asking about that issue, and we talked about it uh, this past week. Completely different than what you'd ever expect. People make stuff up, and, but that's what you think. And so I want everybody here to know that uh, just because somebody says the sign of Jonah is this, and it's in your head, it may not be. And you're going to find out what it is today. God gives us free will, and he allows us to exercise that free will even to our own detriment. But one thing that will never happen is that we will somehow thwart his will, his plans, and his purposes, both for ourselves and for those who are, we are just destined to influence. This may seem contradictory, but it is not. God uses our choices, which he knew we would make, to accomplish his will and also to bring glory to himself. We cannot use the suicide argument to say, see, I'm going to beat God at his own game because we're making the incorrect assumption that we're doing something that he did not expect. In the end, the only one who loses is us. Jonah tried to get around God's intent and purposes, but as we saw last week, God used nature and a group of Gentiles, men who didn't know the one true God, to show him the error of his ways. If Jonah ended with chapter 1, we might assume that God's plans had not been accomplished. In the same way, if the Bible ended with the Old Testament— then we could very well assume that the devil had won because paradise wasn't restored and only the promise of a curse remained. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go read the last verse of the Old Testament. God promises to strike the land with a curse, right? But we know better. And so when we're done today, make sure to anticipate the rest of chapter two and the final two chapters that we we're going to look at to see how God is vindicated in his intent and in his purposes for the Ninevites. Mm. Likewise, Jesus Christ defeated the devil and brought about a great salvation for the souls of the world. The promise made at the very fall of man occurred exactly as it should. And yet, it was a promise which came about in a wholly unexpected way for the people who awaited their Messiah. Our text verse comes from Habakkuk chapter 3 today, it's verses 53, 54 through 56 the waters flowed over my head. I said, I am cut off. I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my sighing, from my cry for help. For Jonah, his deliverance was completely unexpected. It was not until he was in the belly of this fish that he realized that things would work out as they should. I hope you'll enjoy today's sermon and that you'll benefit from the amazing words which Jonah passes on to us concerning his move from rebellion to repentance and obedience. His prayer, like several other prayers in the Bible, is so beautiful and so heartfelt that it needs to be thought on and to be considered, not just quickly read and forgotten. Other prayers like this one are spoken by Hannah, David, Daniel, Nehemiah, Solomon, Hezekiah, Mary, and others. Each is recorded to give us insights into repentant, grateful, or petitioning hearts and how God responds to them. He placed these prayers in here for our benefit, and we skip over or merely skim over them at our own loss. Understanding what God responds to and why is of such great value in our walk with the Lord. Such treasures like Jonah's prayer are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is I cried out to the Lord. It's verses one and two. We're going to be looking at what occurs before Jonah's time in the belly of the fish. And yet the prayer is made from the fish's belly. As most people consider that this was the sign which Jesus is referring to concerning himself before the people of Israel, it is now. Before we start looking at these verses to determine if that is correct, what is, in fact, the sign of Jonah? Is it that he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights? Or is it something else which hinges on the safe delivery of Jonah, which necessitated the Lord's intervention? The first thing to do is to look at how the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow him. Secondly, there's no doubt that the account is true. Nowhere is it indicated in this story that it is merely allegorical. Jesus himself referenced it when he was referring to his own death and burial. There's no reason why we should think that he was citing this as allegory or that he was merely accommodating his audience, as liberal scholars will often say. He spoke of it as if it was a true account, because it is. And because it is, the Lord prepared a great fish— And we know that it was specifically appointed for this moment in time to deliver him. Just as he appointed each step of David's life to lead to and to continue him in the kingship, he appointed a fish for Jonah's delivery. With God, all things are possible and there is no problem with this account. In the last sermon, we learned about the meaning of three days and three nights and how it can mean something much less than 72 hours. Indeed, much, much less. To demonstrate this from a different account in the Gospels, we can go to that of the Transfiguration. First, we're going to read the account that comes from Matthew, and then that same account from the book of Luke. Here's what it says in Matthew Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light from Luke. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. In one account, it says after six days. And in the other account, it says about eight days after. Is there a contradiction here? No, there's no contradiction here. Matthew is speaking about a six day period following the day they went up the mountain. Luke is speaking about a seven-day period from the previous account. This would have been about eight days earlier. In other words, a beginning, an ending, and six days in the middle. We speak in exactly the same terms in English all the time based on who we're talking to and the reference that we're using. We need not worry. The account of Jesus' crucifixion and subsequent resurrection is clearly laid out in the Bible, and that information was provided in the written notes of the last sermon. He rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday, and he was crucified on a Friday. After this, he rose on a Sunday. The account is easily followed when it's properly laid out. Then, as I noted, 13 times in the New Testament, it says he rose on the third day. This is repeated in all four Gospels, in Acts, and in the book of 1 Corinthians. Understanding this, the fourth point to determine is what is the sign Jesus is speaking about. On the surface, it appears that Matthew is saying that the sign of Jonah was that of be- him being in the belly of the fish for three days and for three nights. After saying this, he said that he would likewise be in the belly of the earth. In other words, the sign seems to be his death and resurrection. But Luke leaves out the entire time frame and the entire account of the fish. When he does this, he clears up the context that the sign of Jonah is his preaching. And what that preaching stated that destruction was decreed in 40 days. Looking at these verses in their proper light clearly shows that the preaching to the Ninevites was the sign. Here's what Luke says. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Four. As Jonah became assigned to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The sign is the preaching, which, if rejected, would lead to a destruction after 40 days. If we go back to Matthew and reread what he's presented there, we can see that Jesus does tell of his coming death and burial. But the sign is, like in Luke, the preaching in Nineveh. The resurrection bears witness to the truth of his preaching, which was to an already unbelieving people. Here's what it says in Matthew, the whole context. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus' words of the kingdom and of repentance to this generation are the ultimate sign of who he was. Other prophets spoke in the name of the Lord. On the other hand, Jesus spoke in his own name and under his own authority and as the son of the father. Indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Now, can we substantiate this? Yes, he says at other times and under different contexts that he would be crucified and he would rise on the third day as a confirmation of his words, such as in Matthew 26, where it says this, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. His reference to Jonah and Matthew was only confirming the time, that the time of his burial would be the same as Jonah's time in the belly of the fish, and that the resurrection would validate his words to the people. In other words, it is the preaching which is the sign of his office. As I said, unlike the prophets of old who spoke under the authority of the Lord, it is under his own authority confirming that he is the Lord. When we get to chapter 3 of Jonah, we're going to read this. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. (laughs) Jonah spoke of destruction, which was just 40 days away. This is the specific sign to Israel. This warning to repent or be overthrown turned out to be a day for a year, just as it was in the Old Testament. When Israel disobeyed in the wilderness, they were given a day for a year punishment for every day that the spies were gone. It was 40 days and thus 40 years of punishment. Here's what it says in Numbers 14. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days for each day, you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. In Ezekiel chapter 4, he was told to lay on his right side for 40 days, signifying a day for a year of punishment for Judah. He was told the same for his left side, but for 390 days. It was a day for a year for the house of Israel. Together, they formed the basis of the return of Israel in 1948. Jonah will call out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The preaching is the sign that Jesus then references. In 40 years, a day for a year, Israel would be destroyed and carried away in exile. Forty years after Christ spoke to Israel, the nation was destroyed by the Romans, just as he said it would be in Matthew 23. Here's what he says. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This might seem like a long introduction to verse 1, but it was necessary to dispel the incorrect assumption that the time in the belly of the fish was the sign to Nineveh, or that the time of Christ in the tomb was the sign to Israel. Rather, the word of God spoken to Israel in fulfillment of Scripture and under the full authority of the Lord was the sign. The resurrection merely proved that. Therefore, what we will look at today is a confirmation of the truth that the word of the Lord is coming through Jonah. The word itself is the sign. Nothing is recorded that Nineveh even knew of Jonah's time in the belly of the fish, but Jonah did. And so his word was full of the power of the Lord when he went to preach. Verse 1, then Jonah prayed, and prayed Jonah. Jonah, Again, the name is given, indicating that we are to think on its meaning, dove. He is vacillated like an erratic flight of a dove between his calling to Nineveh and his flight to Tarshish. The reintroduction of his name is calling us to continue to consider the change in course which has occurred and why it has come about. God is moving Jonah through the drama, just as he is moving mankind through his plan of redemptive history. Jonah is merely used as a symbol of this. Right now, he is at the pivot point of his adventure, just as redemptive history was at the pivot point when Christ went to his cross and then to the grave, pictured by the events in Jonah now. Of these words, Joseph Benson says the following, those devout thoughts and feelings which he had at that time, he afterward digested into the following prayer. I'm not sure if he even caught his own pun there, but being where Jonah is, The word digested does fit perfectly. It is correct, though, that this was penned after the ordeal. It is not to be thought that he carried along an ink, pen, and a parchment in order to chronicle his time in the belly of the fish. This, then, is a sort of psalm of thanksgiving, like one of David's. After David's many ordeals, he would often take the time to contemplate what occurred and then put his thoughts into a marvelous psalm, which is still cherished and adored by God's people even to this day. This particular opening parallels the opening words of Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, where the same words are used, changing only the name from Hannah to Jonah. As far as the word pray here, it is palal, a different word than that stated in chapter 1. This indicates a prayer to God. It can, and in this case does, include supplication as well as thanksgiving. The words of supplication are hinted at through the prayer, but are otherwise unrecorded and the thanksgiving is explicit in response to the answering of the supplication. Further, the prayers of petition and supplication indicate the time during his time in the ocean. The prayer of thanksgiving is recorded as being during his time in the belly of the fish. He came to understand that the fish was actually his deliverer. It was a pledge of delivery and life not an instrument of final destruction. We know this because the construction of the Hebrew in verse 7 shows a delivery already accomplished instead of the expectation of it. Verse 9 also speaks of the surety of events coming later, even though he was still in the fish's belly. Only after these things will he be released from the belly. Now, while there, Jonah uses his time wisely and he prays. Good job, Jonah. At the bleakest time in his life, he sought the face of the Lord. This isn't unusual, and it's the pattern that most people follow as they plod along through life. How often do we try our very best to run from the Lord and His directives, just like Jonah? But when things go south, the first thing we do is pray, or we ask somebody to pray for us. What happens after the prayer is what's even more important, though. When the things stabilize, Are we going to go back to our old habits or are we going to recognize God's hand in our deliverance and obey him from that point on? I have a friend who is, as he calls himself, spiritual. However, the last thing that this guy wants is a relationship with God. Some time ago, I got an email. Charlie, I need prayer. I have something wrong and the doctors want to do a scan on me next week. The fear in his email was almost tangible. I told him I'd pray for him. A few days later, he got the all clear from the doctors, and I'm sure that was the very last time that God has heard from him since then. Yeah. I've seen the pattern many times in the past, and I've read a jillion accounts like it from people during wartime or natural disaster. Think of 9-11. After 9-11, the churches swelled in America. The little church I was attending down the road, 200 people swelled to 500, and it was up there for a month or two, and the numbers very quickly degraded back down because people They got their deliverance. They knew that they were now safe. And so it didn't matter anymore. In the end, the only thing that matters is if we're going to follow through with praise after the prayers or if we're going to be like the dog that returns to his vomit. The Lord is there and he is not a dummy. Verse one continues, to the Lord, his God, El Yehovah Elohav, unto Yehovah, his God. It is of note that the term his God is used. In the previous chapter, he had said, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. After that, it said in verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and took vows. Despite having been thrown over, and even though the sailors had come to know Jehovah, Jonah was not abandoned by him. He had remained the God of Jonah. It is a continued picture of Israel. They may have been cast away from the Lord, but the Lord is still their God. He and no other. And in picture, we also see Christ, who cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his humanity, he may have been forsaken while bearing the sin of man, but his God is still his God. A separation existed, but the relationship did not cease. Just as the prodigal son had come to his senses and returned to his father, Jonah likewise now returns to his God. The pattern is given for us to learn from. Israel is Israel. And they are the people of the Lord, whether they are in exile or whether they are in a restored relationship. Verse 1 continues, from the fish's belly. Mimea hadaga, from inward parts the fish. As I said, the prayer comes from the belly of the fish. He understood that the fish was, in fact, his deliverer. This is the second and last time that the Mee or inward parts, are mentioned in Jonah. And it is also the last time that they are mentioned in the Bible. The word, in fact, means inward parts, but it has two other uses as well. It is used as a metaphor for the heart, spirit, and emotions of a person, or even God. And thirdly, it is used to speak of the reproductive organs of either a male or a female. In Ruth chapter 1, it is used when speaking of the womb of Naomi. This is the only time that it is used of a creature, and so the use of the word is not without significance. The fish is the deliverer, and thus is a symbol of Christ. There is Jesus the man, and there is the Christ of God. And so each aspect of this word is seen. There are the literal inward parts. There is the emotion of what has occurred in the Lord through the work of Christ, and there is the new life which issues from the work of the deliverer there in the womb of life. And this is not a stretch. Jonah, typical of Jesus, will acknowledge that he was in the pit meaning death, just as Jesus was. And so all of what is occurring to Jonah is given to us to understand the greater work of Christ. As he also is a picture of the Jewish people, the same three concepts can also be applied to them. (coughs) The emotions of their plight, the new birth that they receive in Christ, all of it is tied up in what happens to Jonah. One word carefully placed into the account is given to show us so very much of what is going on in redemptive history. Now, as a curiosity for you, the word fish in verse 117, that was our last verse of the uh, last chapter that we had last week, was dog, a male fish. Here in verse 2:1, is daga, a female fish. The speculation on the reason for this is almost endless. Some is so fanciful that it's absurd. One guy named Ischakis said, here's what he said, listen carefully, Jonah was first swallowed by a male fish... And that because he did not pray in it, he vomited up and swallowed by a female one in which his situation was more confined and that from this circumstance, he was driven to prayer. Well, we know that's not right because a male fish is what spits him up on the shore. So we've got male, female, male. So that guy's wrong and it's stupid anyway. And it may be stupid, but other people count this up to just scribal error, which is just as stupid. I mean, you got one verse and he says a male fish and then the next verse he says a female fish. If that's not ridiculous, I don't know what is. The Lord put this in here for a reason, just as he did with the gender discords elsewhere in the Bible. The book of Ruth has several that we went through. Nobody had ever commented on them except incorrectly, and we went through it. Now you know why if you watch those, Naomi or those Ruth sermons. Therefore, there must be something which is being relayed to us about what has happened to Jonah. In the Bible, wisdom is personified as a female. Instruction, or Torah, is feminine as well. Therefore, the belly of the fish is being personified as a place of wisdom and instruction. And this is so. Jonah is said to have prayed out of the fish's belly after his death in the sea. The fish is now equated to the place where knowledge is being conveyed concerning the process of redemption. This seems logical because the next time that the word fish is used, as I said, it will again be in the masculine. The fish that swallowed him is the same fish that will vomit him out a male fish, but the belly of the fish here is being equated with knowledge concerning God's redemptive workings. And before we depart from this verse, let us look at one final treasure. Jonah is said to have prayed out of the fish's belly. It is in his true deliverer, meaning the Lord, that he has found comfort. And it is to him that he gives his words of prayer and thanksgiving. What would seem like an odd place to praise God becomes rather the place to praise God. And there's a lesson here, which is confirmed by the actions of Paul and Silas after they were beaten by the magistrates in Philippi, and then they were thrown into prison. Guess what they did? Acts chapter 17. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. The place where one is and the situation that one finds himself in is the place to pray. It's the place to praise the Lord. There is every reason to believe that the miraculous account of Jonah here is correct, even to the last detail. And there is no reason to assume that out of the belly of the fish meant that he praised him not after being in the belly of the fish, but while being in the belly of the fish. Verse 2, And he said, And said, The words which are recorded in this prayer follow very closely after the words of portions of several psalms. And we're going to go through them. You're going to see amazing you know, uh, com- com- comparisons between the Psalms and what Jonah says here. Because of this, liberal scholars immediately dismiss this entire account as fiction. Then they point to it as a later writing, which was simply attributed to the prophet Jonah. There's no more reason to assume that than there is that the words of the Psalms merely matched the thoughts and expressions of Jonah. He was a prophet of Israel, and he would have been well aware of the words of the Psalms, which were already written. The psalms which came later then would have built upon his words now. Concerning the already written psalms, his mind would be filled with many of them, just as ours are when we face trials or triumphs. How many countless people, while pondering their plight, have uttered the words, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And how many people, having seen the majesty of God's handiwork, then proclaimed, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. When I left to go around the U.S. in 2010, my father wrote me a letter. It was obviously a very moving time in his life. And so in it, he made several references to scripture, something that I had never seen him do before, ever. Why liberal scholars are so gross in their analysis of the Bible is beyond me. But the word peanut head quickly comes to mind. Jonah's state of mind called for the word of God, which was already instilled in him. And so in turn, his words utter forth that same precious word. His words of the next verses follow a pattern which is divided into three separate parts. Each part has a danger, followed by a deliverance, or a set need and its accompanying help. Each builds upon the next to a crescendo of spiritual emotion, issuing forth in praise. And each goes from hope, to deliverance, to thanksgiving. As we go through this prayer, we have to not make the fundamental mistake of almost every scholar and commentary available— They almost unanimously equate the following words with the time while in the belly of the fish. This is incorrect. Verse 1 shows us that the prayer is made from the belly of the fish, and therefore it is the place of deliverance and safety, not the place of distress and affliction. In other words, the words from the fish's belly reflect his condition before entering, not after. This is the place of wisdom and instruction, which followed after the ordeal. As you saw last week, the time in the sea equates to Jesus' time at the cross, and we're going to see that as we go along. Verse 2 continues, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. Kariti Mitzara li el Yehovah. I cried out of the affliction to me unto Jehovah. Jonah's life was given up for dead. His affliction was so great that there was no option left but to call out to the Lord. His strength had failed, and he could not save himself. In like manner, Christ do- cried out in his tsara or affliction. The same word used here is used in the 22nd Psalm, a psalm about the cross. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is no one to help. That's Psalm twenty-two, eleven, Verse 2 continues, and he answered me. Va ya'aneni, and he answered me. The same word is used by Jesus concerning God's having answered the cry of his affliction while on the cross. Here's what it says from the same psalm. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen, you have answered me. Each step we're seeing insights into the trial of Christ and the relief from that trial. For Jonah now, the words acknowledge that in his affliction, the Lord answered him. At the time of the cry, he didn't know it, only later. Thus, he reverts back to his plight once again with the following words. Verse 2 continues, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. From womb Sheol I cried. These words explain what his affliction is. He wasn't afflicted with boils, nor was he afflicted by his enemies. Rather, he was afflicted with death itself. It says that he cried out from Sheol. Sheol is variously translated as the pit the grave, and even hell. It is the place of the dead. It is a moot point to speculate as to whether Jonah literally died or if he's calling out as the psalmist did, reflecting that their lives were otherwise ended without the Lord's immediate intervention. If Jonah actually died in the sea, the fish swallowing him could have resuscitated him. If so, it would make an exact picture of Christ. If not, and if he was only at the gates of death with no hope but death, it doesn't change the situation for him at all. I say this because it is quite fashionable to hear people dogmatically state and argue that Jonah died. That's silly to go to such extremes when we don't know. The word used in this clause for cried is not the same as the beginning verse. The word is shava. It is not just a simple calling out, but a cry for help. It comes from a primitive root meaning to be free, but it is used only causatively and reflexively in the Bible. It is calling out for freedom from plight and thus for help. There was a need which could not be met in any other possible way, and so he cried out for help. This clause is prophetically fulfilled in Christ as is evidenced from the words of the 30th Psalm, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. The teaching which says that what occurred with Jonah was a literal death and resurrection as an advanced sign to Israel that the Messiah would die and then resurrect in fulfillment of the picture is false. The Jews of Jesus' time were not expecting the death and resurrection of their Messiah, and the Jews of today are not expecting it of the Messiah that they believe will deliver them. David's words of the 86th Psalm say the following, for great is your mercy toward me and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Same terminology. Nobody claims that David was actually dead and then came back to life. Nobody. It was understood that the symbolism speaks of a person who has been delivered from a violent mob that otherwise would have sent him to Sheol. It is perfectly in line with what Jonah is saying in his prayer. Other passages in the Old Testament make this same claim as well. Isaiah, for example. So to try to link the sign of Jonah to a prior understanding of the resurrection is false. Only after Christ's work do we come to realize the symbolism in Jonah points to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 2 continues, and you heard my voice. Shamata heard my voice. There's no and at the beginning of the clause in the Hebrew. Thus, it sets it off with a striking tone of contrast. There was a cry of help from the belly of hell itself, and yet, even from there, his voice was heard. Whatever Jonah thought about fleeing from the Lord, he found that the words of the psalm are literally true. Psalm 139, which I quoted you in our first sermon, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Even in the pit of Sheol itself, the Lord is available. Even death cannot separate us from our creator. Thank God for the concept of the rapture. Ooh, man, I'm all excited about that. Several Psalms closely match the words of this verse. One is the 18th Psalm, which was written by David and which Jonah would have been aware of. They each point to a prophetic fulfillment in Christ. Here's the 18th Psalm, verses 5 and 6. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Sounds just like what we're reading now. And I and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him, even to his ears. The 120th Psalm also closely matches Jonah's words. In my distress, I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. As we move on, verse 3, like verse 5 and part of verse 6, will provide us with a vivid description of the danger and distress which surrounded Jonah. It thus details the circumstances which lead up to the words of verse 2. Where can we find relief from the storm? The waves rage and the breakers crash all around. Relieve us, O God, take away the harm, lest the waters overwhelm and we are drowned. You are our hope, you, O Lord, our God. There is no other, our eyes are on you. Save us from this ocean so deep and so broad. This is our cry, grant us life anew. And we will bring you offerings of thanks and praise. We will come into your temple, hearts of joy filling us. Grant us life anew. Grant us eternal days. We call out for salvation. We call out for Jesus. Our second thought today is hope in the Lord. It's verses three and four. Verse three, for you cast me into the deep. And you had cast me into the deep. The word for cast here is not the same as that was used several times in chapter 1, which was translated as through. The sailors had thrown Jonah in the sea, but it is the Lord who had cast him into the deep. They were but the instrumental cause of Jonah's sentence. The Lord was, however, the principal cause. Surprisingly, the word for deep here was first used concerning the Egyptians who were cast into the depths of the Red Sea. Here's what it says. Exodus 15, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. It is then something that Jonah must have considered. His fate was the same as those who came against Israel itself. Thus, his deliverance is one of mercy, not because it was deserved. We are learning from the account through the choice of the words that all all people are under the same sentence because of sin. But the Lord demonstrates mercy upon whom he will show mercy. The words of this clause reflect the same state which David faced, and thus which prophetically looked forward to what Christ himself faced. Here's what it says in Psalm 69, verse 2. I sink in the deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. Verse 3 continues, into the heart of the seas. Bilvav yamim into heart seas. The heart in this sense is metaphorically the midst or the center, just as we use it today. He was on a vessel in the open seas and he was cast out into those seas. To him, there was no more hope of swimming to the west than there was that he would swim to the east. And should he have gone to the south, it would have made no difference than if he had chosen the north. In all directions, there was only water, just water, to be left Alone, to die in such a state has got to be one of the most horrific deaths imaginable. The immensity of the open waters is beyond overwhelming, and possibly worse, there's a greater uncertainty in the ocean. In the ocean, your legs, they simply dangle into the vast void, tempting anything in sight for a nibble or a bite. Jonah knew his time was up as he floundered in the great empty waste of the sea. Verse 3 continues, and the flood surrounded me, and river compassed about me. The river of the sea is its current. In the Mediterranean Sea, it sets from west to east. It then reaches the coast of Syria, and it turns north. Even if he were carried back to his beloved home, he was still most likely going to be swept north before reaching there. He was surrounded and without hope in the midst of the sea. The words of this clause and the previous one look to the work of Christ prevailing over both the seas and the rivers. Here's what it says in Psalm 89. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him and in my name his horn shall be exalted. Also I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Verse three continues, all your billows and your waves passed over me ale All your breakers and your waves passed over me. As Jonah struggled to survive, the force of the ocean was too much. The mishbar, or breakers, are the waves which fold over themselves and descend in heavy billows of white foam. The force of them will easily push a swimmer under. The word comes from the word shavar, which means to break. The gal, or waves, comes from the word galal, which means to roll. These would be the waves which would lift him up on high and then drop him to their base. Thus they are said to be like the breakers to pass over him. The same words are used in the 42nd Psalm. Here's what it says. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The swelling of the ocean of death, which Christ Jesus faced was an overwhelming flood, which carried him down. And yet, With it was carried the sin of man, which is what brought him to that calamitous state in the first place. He was willing to enter the sea of chaos and confusion in order to bring us safely to the shore of harmony, peace, and contentment. This was his confidence, just as the confident words of verse 4 were experienced by Jonah. In the next words, there is seen faith which triumphs over despondency. Verse 4, then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. And I, I said, I have been cast from before your eyes. The words here are remarkably similar to those of the 31st Psalm. It says, For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. To be cast out from before the eyes of the Lord is to be cast out of his favor. Jonah had been so cast to teach him a lesson, Christ had been so cast to save the souls of men. Jonah was cast into the sea of water and Christ into the sea of chaos and death. Both acknowledged their plight, but they also knew that it was not to be their end. Jonah was given relief and a new chance at life in the form of a fish. Christ was raised by the power of God unto eternal life. Verse 4 finishes with these words, Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Ach, osif lehabit el hekal Yet, Again, I will look toward temple your holy. The word he uses here, ach, is an adverb which means surely. It is a word intended to emphasize that which follows it and is in contrast to that which precedes it. Understanding that, we can look at the two clauses again. And I said I have been cast from before your eyes. Surely, again, I will look toward your holy temple. Here in verse 4, between verses of doom, there is a glimmer of hope, even a certainty of it. He was a prophet, and he knew his commission. He also knew that God had a plan which he was to carry out. When he says, yet again, I will look toward your holy temple, there's no reason to assume that he was speaking of the resurrection or of heaven. Rather, he has made the logical deduction that because the Lord had sent the storm, and because the sailor's lot pointed to him, God still intended to use him. There in the belly of the fish, clarity of the situation came through. The same is true with Christ. He knew God's plan. He faithfully carried it out, and he understood that he would again enter the holy temple in heaven upon completion of his mission. Jonah's words are confident, and they are filled with a sense of anticipation. They're mirrored by the words of the fifth psalm, which ultimately point to the greater work of Christ. But as for me, he says, I will come into your house and the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. How often do we find ourselves in exactly the same position? When everything is chaos around us and it seems as if our heads are under water? we still have moments of clarity where we remember that God really is in control and that he has a plan and a purpose that we just haven't fully pieced together yet. Just this week, a girl that I went to school with was posting something on Facebook that brought distress to all of us. Her son was murdered here in Sarasota and yet she was able to write the following words to all who could see her Facebook profile. I am devastated with the loss I am experiencing. I am numb. My faith in Jesus Christ is sustaining me and my mom. Though she is surrounded by waves of anguish, she she still retains clarity of thought because of the Lord. Christ has gone before us, and so we can be assured that what he has promised will come to pass Let our hearts not be troubled in this world, which is often filled with chaos and confusion. Jesus Christ really did go before us. He really did enter the pit of hell for us, whether literal hell or whether it's metaphorical. I'm not here to debate that. He went down into the pit of Sheol and he carried all of our sin away with him. And then by the power of God, he was raised again unto eternal life. And there's a reason why this had to happen. The Bible says that all have sinned. And all fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us. And the wages of sin is death. That's simple enough to understand. I go to work. I get paid, right? On Friday, you expect your boss to give you something. You've earned it. It is your wage. The wages of sin is death. It's what you've earned. You get death because you have sinned. And we're all going to have two types of death. Actually, we all are in two types of death. We face it. The first is spiritual death. And that's something that we already have. We're born with it. We're cut off from God because of the sin of our father completely separated from an infinitely holy God. And then there's that second death that we all have to face, which is the death of our body. And if we don't get that first death, the spiritual death fixed first, then we'll stay spiritually dead for all eternity when our physical death comes. Nothing can change that. And that's why Christ came, was to pull us out of that pit of death by taking our sin and going into it himself and then coming out by the power of God and taking away our sin at that point. And he proved it because he was resurrected. The wages of sin is death. If he came out of the grave, it means he had no sin of his own. He prevailed over sin. And he promises every person here and every person that will simply call out to him to reach out by faith, I want that eternal life given by the grace of God and his mercy on us. All you have to do is say, I believe that and you will be saved for all eternity. He proved it by coming out of the grave. The wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's a gift. Can't earn it. If you try to earn it, you offend the giver. Receive it. Receive it. Reach out your hand and say, I want Jesus Christ. I want him to forgive me and wash away my sins, and it will be done. I was back here a couple minutes ago, and one of the ladies asked me, what brought you to this place? I said, you mean here? Preaching? Yeah. Sin. That's the only word I gave her, wasn't it? That's it. That's the only reason why I'm here today is because of sin. Somebody took my sin away. I can't believe it. Day to day to day to day. I can't believe it. And all the times I sin in this life since then, you all don't know me. You wouldn't even imagine. Dad does. I'm so thankful for the grace of Jesus Christ. I am so thankful for it. Sin. He's taken it all away. Our penalty is paid. He's not counting sins. Men's against one, each other anymore or against them anymore free. Thank you, Jesus. Our closing verse comes from Psalm 18. It's verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him, even to his ears. Next week is uh, Jonah 2, 5 through 10. There's only one way back to God, so climb aboard. It's entitled, Salvation is of the Lord. That'll be our sixth Jonah sermon. And I'll tell you this, the Lord, as you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean rages against you and is ready to swallow you up, he can send delivery to you in the most remarkable of ways. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Real short poem today. Just in case a couple people have never been here before, I do a poem based on the, the verses in each uh, sermon that I do. And then I compile them all together at the end and I post it on the internet. So the Bible's being made into a poem. I'm not trying to change God's word. I'm just trying to make it into a poem. And I state that very clearly when I post it. This is just something to help people understand maybe a little differently. It's entitled, Out of the Belly of Sheol, I Cried. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord as God from the fish's belly, a place quite odd. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, hoping for fish belly eviction, and you heard my voice here in the depths of the sea. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas where I was cast, and the flood surrounded me as if me to keep. All your billows and your waves over me passed. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. You shall relieve me from this plight. Lord God, we have all been caught in a sea of sin. The breakers and the waves have surrounded us. Surely there seemed no hope we were done in, and yet praise God you sent your son, Jesus. We thank you, O God, for the ending of all strife. We thank you for Christ Jesus, who has granted us new life. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the marvelous pictures of Christ that just are everywhere, everywhere in the Bible and in such a small little story that we've read so many times. And I'm so thankful for my friend. I'll call her Emma. That's what she calls herself on Facebook. She, uh, she said, I've never read Jonah so many times and studied it so deeply in my life mm-hmm. as I have since we started this this series. And I'm thankful for people like that that are willing to look into your word and to search it and to make their brains hurt in order to know you better and to try to figure out what you're saying. Thank you for that. Thank you for people so dedicated. And for each person here who's willing to come and listen to me with all of my, my tongue slurs and my faults they sit through it patiently because they love your word. And that's such a treasure that there are people out there that are willing to just hold on to this precious word and to want to know it more and more. Oh God, you're so good to us. We certainly pray for safe travels for our our brother and sister traveling back to Arkansas today. We pray for uh, Roy and Mike, whose mother is uh, still suffering from her stroke. We would pray that you would be with her and with them through this ordeal. And we certainly lift up Mabel, who we miss today and who's sick, and uh, we pray that she'll be well soon. And certainly I'm forgetting other people that I am sorry to have forgotten, Lord, but you know them. You know each person that's suffering and struggling, and even for my friend who lost her son, 22 years old, and beaten to death by some unknown assailant, but she has faith in Christ, and she has a, a hope beyond this life because of Christ and the power of the resurrection. What a great hope we have how marvelous it is. And so we're going to take the Lord's Supper and we're going to proclaim his name until he comes. And may that day be soon. In his name we pray. Amen.